the subject that the Antioch Network teaching team has given us for this session is leadership. I'm not quite sure how they came to the subject of leadership. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that Antioch Network is a fellowship of leaders and the ministries that they lead. We first started teaching on the subject of leadership in Antioch Network gatherings with the subject of apostolic leadership. And I've got to be careful not to go down that road this morning. There is teaching on the Antioch Network website that was given at other gatherings on apostolic leadership. We got into that subject because Antioch Network was born to be a movement of local churches starting new churches among unreached peoples. And several years into that, we found that there were every now and then a church that could do that, but the majority of churches after five years or so found that they hadn't really gotten to first base. And so we had to kind of work with what was the issue, what was the reason, what was the cause for that? And that got us into this whole area of God's calling. It doesn't work very well if we try to get people to do something that God hasn't called them to do. And if God has called someone to do it, whatever it is, he has gifted them to do what he's called them to do. And so the whole process of starting new churches among unreached people begins with a calling from God. Not everybody has it. And those who have the calling also have the gifting. And so that gifting has to be in the New Testament, so that got us into this whole area of apostolic leadership. Anyway, that's a, another subject for another time. For this session, we want to see if we can't say one or two things that would be helpful about leadership in general. And another kind of catalyst for this is that over the past years, we have been surprised at how many people have come to us and said, there is something unusual that you and Antioch Network have in the area of leadership and we need it. What is it? We need you to teach about it. And it's been amazing that a number of the voices that have come this way have been Europeans. And I personally find myself in a place in life where when, when people who are younger than I am and who are very meaningful in my life ask me to do something, I find it hard to say no. In fact, I don't have the motivation to say no. If they want it, I want to give it to them. And so in one way, this session is dedicated to the younger leaders that have asked for more teaching on leadership. Now, I have begun to write on this, and the name of the book is Leaders Following. Well, you say, George, that's a little bit of a weird title for a book on leadership. Leaders are supposed to lead. Other people are supposed to follow leaders. So in what sense is a leader a follower? And that gets us right into 
whatever secret there might be in Antioch Network about leadership, actually it's not a secret, but if you think we do have a secret, I can give you the answer really quickly. If there's any grace among us for leadership, it is the understanding that as leaders, we are primarily followers of Jesus. Jesus is our leader. We're learning from him. We're watching him, how he leads. And we're seeking to lead in the way that he led. And so that's where the title of this book that's now being written, Leaders Following, that's where it comes from. And the subtitle is, They Left Everything and Followed Jesus. So the comments that I'm going to share with you during this session come from the first chapter. And the first chapter of that book is the title, Was Jesus a Leader? What do you think about that? Was Jesus a Leader? And the subtitle of the chapter is The Ultimate Test of Leadership. What would you say is the ultimate test of leadership? Was Jesus a leader? How do we know whether he was a leader? Well, what, what is it that defines leadership? The ultimate test of leadership is not what the leader does, but what others do in response to what the leader does. So a true leader, a leader after the pattern of Jesus, is not trying to draw attention to himself or be involved in great works or clever methodology. But his whole focus or her whole focus is that others may do significantly meaningful things for God. The ultimate test of leadership, not what the leader does, but what others do as a result of what the leader does. <clears throat> Based on popular understandings of what leadership is, or images of what a leader should look like, Jesus hardly qualifies. He had little to no social or economic standing. He showed no interest in political power. Really? Jesus showed no interest in political power? Does that have anything to say? about the church in our day, particularly the church in America, that Jesus, the greatest leader ever to live, had no interest in political power. Surrounded by the might of Rome and the religious authority structure into which he was born, Jesus appeared, humanly speaking, relatively powerless. He did have a small group of close students and a larger community of followers. But when things got dangerous, they were unable to protect him. What are the marks of leadership? Power, notoriety, ability to give commands, wealth, adoration by the crowds, authority to impose one's will on other people, what are the ultimate marks of leadership? The ultimate characteristic of effective leadership is enduring beneficial influence. Leadership is about 
influence. Reviewing the legacies of most leaders throughout history, we find their influence typically died with them or even before them. The results of their work did not endure. Reviewing the public record of the depth and breadth of Jesus' influence across the centuries points to him as the most influential leader in all of human history. Those who self-identify as his followers are now distributed throughout the earth, on every continent, in every country, within virtually every social grouping. But his influence cannot be measured in numbers. It rests rather in the deep, enduring transformation he brings to individual lives, from paupers to kings. Though he was publicly condemned by Rome to a shameful death, his disciples multiplied throughout Roman society, one of the most violent and licentious ever. This did not happen by top-down power. Jesus wasn't about top-down power. The message of his kingdom is not about top-down power, political or otherwise, but through a bottom-up movement of people transformed by his life and teachings. Jesus began his public ministry announcing the availability of the kingdom of God, and he spent his whole public ministry teaching the characteristics of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bottom up. Jesus said it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. You plant it in the ground. You don't know where it is. You, you water it. It begins to grow. It becomes a huge tree. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like leaven. Put in a bunch of dough and it permeates the dough and fills the whole lump. It's a bottom up movement of God transforming individual people. The wisdom of Jesus gave answers for life that philosophers had been seeking for 500 years. Political, military, religious, and intellectual leaders followed him. They still do. So we want to, in looking at the leadership of Jesus, ask ourselves what were the characteristics that defined how Jesus went about leadership. And I'd like to share with you eight. Eight characteristics of Jesus' leadership. The first one is hiddenness. Hiddenness. Do you associate hiddenness with leadership? Jesus had no interest in self-promotion. He knew who he was. His father knew who he was. Truth seekers would come to know who he was. He was content to spend years in obscurity at the carpenter's bench. He waited, unnoticed, for the father's timing, for God's wait, and for God's go. The son of God, in hiddenness, out of public view, was being formed in his human character. The book of Hebrews tells us 
Though he were a son, he learned obedience. God is largely among us in hiddenness. This is intentional. This is his purpose. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the fact that God is largely among us in hiddenness reveals the nature of his kingdom. It reveals his strategy for making all things new. So is God making all things new? Absolutely. That's what God's doing in the earth today. He's making all things new. In the midst of all the chaos that we are all internationally experiencing, God is working to make all things new. How is he doing that? We have to understand his presence among us in hiddenness to understand how that's working. And we have to understand that to understand Jesus' leadership. So, first characteristic of Jesus' leadership, hiddenness. Second characteristic, submission. Now, I thought leaders were supposed to get other people submitting to them. I'm a leader. I want those who are following me to submit to me. That's my focus. God is equipping leaders to carry spiritual authority. That's what God is doing in his church. He's raising up leaders. He's preparing leaders. He's equipping leaders for authority. But no one is ready to exercise authority who cannot submit to authority. If a person cannot submit to authority, they cannot be trusted with spiritual authority. So this is absolutely crucial for leaders in giving birth to new ministries. Because one of the most significant things in giving birth to a new ministry is identifying the leaders that God has put there and developing those leaders to the point where they can be trusted with authority. If they haven't learned to submit to authority, they're not yet ready to receive authority. So keep working with them, keep loving them, keep discipling them, keep mentoring them, keep training them, but until they show a heart that knows how to submit, they're not ready to carry authority. Jesus submitted to the authority of his parents. Luke tells us he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus submitted to the authority of Rome. Rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Are we supposed to pay the tax? Well, let me give me a coin. Whose picture is that on that coin? Caesar's. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Jesus submitted to the authority of Rome. Jesus submitted to the authority of the Jewish leaders. He was clear on how they had strayed from God's way. He pointed out, you are making uh, converts more a child of hell than yourselves. So he was really clear that how they had gone away from God's ways, but he didn't rebel against them. He attended synagogue services he paid the temple tax. He taught in the temple. He sent a cleansed leper to the priest to offer the gift that Moses commanded. Jesus submitted to Judas. Judas, in his heart, decided to betray him. Jesus did not interfere. What you are about to do, do quickly. And Jesus submits to us. And that links in 
to this awesome truth that God is among us in hiddenness. And it reveals in shining lights how God is making all things new. God is submitting to us. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So, hiddenness, submission, characteristic number three, character. Character. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. He went through the human process of character formation. Again, Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There is a close relationship between hiddenness, submission, and character. God forms the character of leaders in hiddenness. Brothers and sisters, how can we miss it? Moses, God chose Moses for an one of the most significant leadership roles in all of history. How did he form him? 40 years in the wilderness. God took Moses from the court of Pharaoh 40 years in the desert, forming his character. David, out in the pastures, alone with the sheep, formed in his character. Here was Goliath. David was asked, well, how can you go against a lion? He said, you know, when I was out in the pasture, a lion came and I slew the lion and I have learned to trust God in the pastures, and this Goliath is going to be uh, like one of those because he has defied the armies of the living God. So David's character formed in hiddenness. Elijah, what authority God gave Elijah. Elijah comes to the king. There will be no dew nor rain these years except by my word. Wow. What authority is that? And then the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and he was alone in the wilderness, and the ravens fed him, and he drank from the brook. John the Baptist. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Luke 180. You know what that verse says? John, John the Baptist, John was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearing to Israel character. God's leaders are formed in their character. But character, as it relates to Jesus' influence or leadership, extends beyond the purity of his own life. It points to the texture of the life he works into his disciples. I love these words from Jesus, Luke 6. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So how can Christian leadership be governed and described by anything other than the example of Jesus? So we live in a day of the secularization of the church. And so when leadership is taught among Christians so often, what happens is we bring in the latest wisdom from the business community or the secular world. Not that the business community or the secular world doesn't have much to teach us, they do. We honor and respect them. 
But how can we begin that way? How can we not begin by emphasizing the person and leader of Jesus and the characteristics that formed his leadership? The result of those, when everyone is fully trained, they will be like their teacher. What will that give the church? Leaders that are Christ-like. Leaders that are Christ-like. How important is that? Christ-like character, not external methods, is the essential quality of Christian leadership. Can I say it again? Christ-like character, not external methods, is the essential quality of Christian leadership. Where character is malformed, leaders malfunction. Brothers and sisters, the number of Christian leaders who are malfunctioning is largely untold. We don't talk about it. Leaders of large churches, leaders of mission agencies, others in the political arena, those who malfunction are far more than is publicly reported. And the root tragedy of all this is that they have been thrust into leadership without Christ-like character having been formed. And when they fall, they don't know where to go. They don't know where to go. Um, central to the formation of Christ-like character, choosing death to the self-life. Boy, so much to talk about that. I want to tell you some stories about my own experience in leadership. I was thrust into leadership quite early. Actually, when I was 17 years old, I joined the Army. And before I turned 18, I was made a trainee platoon sergeant. I had 50 uh, men uh, that I was the trainee platoon sergeant of. So you can just get a little picture of that, uh, how I've always been thrust into leadership early. And um, so I, I, I'm, I'd love to share with you some stories. I've got a million stories, of course. One story that just uh, comes to my mind in developing my own character, which of course is continuing. Not the, this is not the end of it by any means. I was um, one of the leaders in Operation Mobilization. I went to India in 1966 and was part of the uh, initial group that uh, pioneered OM's work in India. Many of those Indian brothers and sisters, even to this day, are dear, dear friends of my wife Hannah and mine. After that time in India, I was dragged kicking and screaming out of India. I never wanted to leave India. I planned to, I got married in India. I planned to live the rest of my life in India. But um, the leader of OM, George Verwer, um, said, George, you've got to come now and be the leader of this ship, the Logos, the ship Logos. God gave us the ship Logos. So I didn't want to do that. But there I was, leader of this ship with 140 missionaries on it. And in 1973, and at that time I was 33 years old, so talk about, wow, 33 years old. Anyway, we were in Ethiopia, and the ship was uh, on the Red Sea, but we had a big uh, program in Addis Ababa, the capital, up in the mountains, and we had a committee, and the committee wanted to have evangelistic meetings. So, okay, they arranged four nights of evangelistic meetings, big, you know, a couple thousand people 
coming to the evangelistic meetings. And they wanted me to preach because they said, you know, the preaching has to be good. And you're the director, so you got to preach. Well, I wanted to be humble. And so I said, well, you know, this is not a one-man show. We, we minister together, so there's this other brother. Uh, he and I kind of share the ministry, so I'll preach two nights and let him preach two nights. Well, the committee wasn't so happy with that. They said, well, you know, is he a good preacher? So they said, well, George, you have to preach the first night because the first night has to be good. And you have to preach the last night because the last night has to be good. And let this other brother preach the second and third nights. So I preached the first night. I thought it was a pretty good message. A number of people came forward to receive the Lord. And then the other brother preached the second and the third night. Then the fourth morning of the fourth night came. Everything was ready for me to preach. The committee came to me. And they said, George, we feel that the other brother should preach tonight because we feel his preaching is better than your preaching. So the other brother, he was very kind. He said, oh, George, don't do it there. This committee's in the flesh. I remember him saying that. This committee's in the flesh. He was right, actually. And uh, so what am I going to do? You know, I'm, I'm the one that's supposed to be preaching, but they want him to preach. So I said to him, you know, we've been having conferences talking about love and Christ-likeness and all these things. Maybe now is the time to start living it out. So I said, let's together go to the meeting tonight. And let me introduce you. And you preach. Now, that was hard. That was hard. Since then, there have been thousands of nights. And what was important to God, really, was not who preached that night. What was important to God, among other things, was that George Miley took one more step, one more step of thousands of steps down the road of the death of the self-centered life, that the beauty and character of Christ might be formed a little bit deeper in me. The process still continues. Character. So, the fourth characteristic of Jesus' leadership, authority. Waiting in hiddenness, allowing the Father to form his human character, Jesus was being prepared for unique authority. Jewish leaders felt their authority threatened by him, so they challenged him. Leaders whose only resource is human authority will be insecure. Have you ever known any insecure leaders? They're leaders. But you get to know them a little bit, scratch below the surface, and you just the insecurity is, is there. Where does that come from? It comes from looking to man. It comes from authority, man-based authority. My authority to paint is man-based. Gonna leave me insecure. Jesus felt no need to defend his authority. 
He submitted to the authorities of his day. His authority came from somewhere else. You know, I love the story in the Gospels when the Jewish leaders came to Jesus and said, who gave you the authority to do the things that you're doing? I mean, what a question. Who gave you this authority? So Jesus, in his indescribably brilliant wisdom, said to them, let me ask you a question. The, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? So they got to thinking, gee, you know, if we say it was from man, the people will get mad because they thought he was a prophet. If we say from heaven, we don't really believe that. So they said, we can't tell where his authority came from. Jesus said, I, I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from either. Because, of course, the authority that Jesus carried, it was obvious to anybody who wanted to know. He carried authority that God had given to him, spiritual authority. You know, uh, in my own experience, uh, a crucial moment in me in understanding spiritual authority came when the Logos was in Manila, the Philippines. And, um, you know, I got lumbered with this ship and 140 people on board. And we had some wonderful conferences upstairs in the conference room. We would talk about love and all those good things. But down under the decks, let me tell you something, there was carnality going on down there. And people saying awful things to each other. You don't need me to describe it all. And when we got to Manila, we had President Marcos. He was the president in those days. And in Melody, you probably heard about her with all the shoes. They came on the Logos to open the book exhibition. And then they invited us to the palace. So we went to the palace. And they gave us gifts. They gave me a gift, and they gave the ship officers a gift. But they didn't know that the engineers on a ship are also officers, so the engineers didn't get gifts. So when we got back to the ship from the, from the palace, the engineers were incensed. They were absolutely incensed. And they came to me with demands. We demand a seat in the dining room. We demand a plaque on our cabin door saying that we we're officers, all kind of demands they made. And some, up until that point, I was trying to somehow hold this thing together. I mean, what would happen if all of a sudden this Logos is supposed to be so wonderful? What would happen if all of a sudden the whole thing disintegrated? What would happen? I was trying to hold it together. And something snapped in me when the engineers made those demands. And I said, I'm not doing this any longer. I'm calling the whole ship together. So I said to everybody, we're having a meeting tonight. We're going to talk about all this. I had members of the crew come to me. George, don't have this meeting. People are going to leave. I said, I'm going to leave. The captain didn't even come to the meeting. He was up in his cabin. He didn't want any part of this. And something, something broke in me during that meeting. I'm not sure all that I said. But the next day at lunch, the chief engineer said, I'd like to make an announcement. So he made an announcement to the whole ship. He basically repented. He said, look, we will sit wherever the chief steward tells us. He, he repented. 
and something broke. And from that time on, what was pretty ugly in terms of Christian community became something incredibly beautiful. And that was when we began to pray for a second ship. And four years later, the God gave us another ship, the Dulos, and now we had two ships. But the point is, God, there is a spiritual authority that God is training leaders to carry. And the body of Christ doesn't work right unless there are those who can carry spiritual authority. Now, real quick, let me give you four characteristics of this spiritual authority we're talking about. First of all, it does not force its will on others. Now we're back to hiddenness. And we're back to character. Spiritual authority, God's authority, does not force its will on others. God has a different agenda. God is not trying to get us to do what he wants us to do. God is seeking to transform us on the inside. And that transformation must be chosen. It cannot be forced. So the very essence of Christian leadership is not forcing people to do something. Secondly, the authority that God gives operates by love. It operates by love. Three, the authority that God gives is expressed in relationship. So wherever Christian leadership is functioning properly, what you will get, you will get leaders submitting to one another in love. Not leaders competing with one another, who's going to be the greatest here, but leaders submitting to one another in love, esteeming one another as better than themselves. And for the authority that God gives, cultivates in others the kingdom righteousness of the heart. What is our goal as leaders? Our goal is to shepherd the sheep toward the cultivation of the righteousness of the heart, which is the righteousness of the kingdom. And that has to be freely chosen. Okay, characteristic number five in the leadership of Jesus Suffering. Why was it unavoidable that Christ suffer? For starters, he came to bear the consequences of our sin. But the causes of his suffering were broader and point to why those who truly follow him will also suffer with him. So there are three things that cause Jesus to suffer and three things that are going to cause us to suffer. The flesh, the world, and the devil. Let's talk a little bit briefly about each of those. In Scripture, flesh points to our natural human life. It opposes God because it is me-centered. The me-centered life is driven by agendas of self-interest. You know, back to the ship again. I'm sorry for all these ship. Uh, I think that's all I've ever done. But I remember one night uh, on the Lagos, we were in the Arabian Gulf. We were in Dubai. Now, these, this was 1971. You know, Dubai is very different today. But in those days, Dubai, just a fishing village that all the oil revenue had begun. So people had all kind of money they didn't, they didn't have anything to spend it on. So here we are. We're coming with a ship with a book exhibition. And we had a large whale's tooth 
was about this high from ivory, stood on the floor, and we kept saying, it had given to us by the government of Denmark, we had bought the logos from the government of Denmark, and we kept saying, we want to sell that whale's tooth when we get to the Gulf. So we had uh, these Arabs come on and say, what have you got for sale? They wanted to buy something. So we said, hey, this is a whale's tooth. How much, where, how much you want for it? I remember saying 500 pounds. Okay, it gave me 500 pounds for this whale. That was a big deal for us, 500 British pounds. So we sold the tooth. We thought we were really good. So I was sitting in my cabin with the chief steward and the program director. All of a sudden, the captain burst through the door. Now, our captain, and you know, this captain's with the Lord now, and the relationship with the captain turned out beautifully. So you won't know it from this story. But he comes bursting through the door, furious, absolutely furious. You sold that whale's tooth. I am the captain of this ship. I am the one that says if anything is to be sold. You don't have the authority to, to, to sell one nail off this ship without my permission. You are an American. And Americans have no culture. You don't understand what a gift is. I mean, it's going on and on and on, on and on and on. Well, that was hard. That was the flesh. And when he finished, I don't know how long that took, but I, 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 something like a half an hour, he went, just went on and on. He walked out. And the chief steward and the program director were still sitting in the cabin. They were sitting there. And I said to them, you didn't have to stay for that. And the chief steward said to me, I was learning too much. So that's a story about the flesh and everybody that leads for Christ because all of God's children are going to come to us in the condition that they're in. Some, thank God, are going to be mature but the vast majority are going to be immature. And we are going to have to carry the consequences of the fact that they're still growing. Now, the world, I want to tell you turkey people, got a lot of turkey people in OM. I want to tell you a story about turkey. In OM, we began to pray for turkey in 1960. And people who We'll tell you the story of uh, modern missions in Turkey. We'll start off with two OM brothers, Dale Roton and Roger Molstead. I'm still in contact with them. Uh, so they went to Turkey. And when we got the Logos in 1971, we wanted to bring Logos to Turkey. So we were praying, Lord, open the door to Turkey. In 1976, we got the Logos through the Suez Canal into the Mediterranean and went to Istanbul. Now, as we are coming into Istanbul, into the Bosporus, 8 o'clock in the morning, I was down in my cabin shaving. All of a sudden, I heard this thump. And I went and looked out the porthole, and I saw Turks in the Bosporus, swimming in the Bosporus, and people from the Lagos throwing life preservers overboard to them, and what had happened is we had a Turkish pilot taking Logos into the berth, but another Turkish pilot on one of the ferries that go across the Bosporus from the European side to the Asian side of Istanbul. Those two Turks got in a 
conflict, and neither one of them gave up. And so our ship hit the bus, hit the ferry. All these Turks on the ferry going to work, we hit them because there was a Turkish pilot on board. And by the time we got into the berth, Lagos was impounded, and they were going to take our captain and put him in prison. Now, we had a captain, another captain, who was a retired Englishman. And man, we didn't want him in prison. And we, were, we planned to stay in Istanbul for 10 days, and we ended up staying a month, impounded. Now, I haven't got time to tell you all the glory details. What we're talking about is the world, the power of the world. There was big spiritual darkness going on in this. But I still remember the last worship meeting we had on the Lagos. There we were worshiping the crew. And Turks came into the meeting. So in the midst of all of the agony, in the midst of all the activity of the world, God was greater. And God even then was drawing Turks to himself. The more effective a Christian leader is, the more he or she will have to respond to the spiritual attacks from the darkness. Okay, let's move on. Characteristic number six, love. Jesus identified love as the core characteristic of his life's work. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. He made love the defining characteristic of a disciple. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Love, as Jesus taught it, has revolutionized individuals and communities down through the centuries. There is depth to his teaching unknown before or after him. Just listen to these words. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Love is the most powerful form of evangelism. It manifests the presence of the kingdom. Now, I got one more story to tell you. In 2016, Hannah was invited to Lotz in uh, Poland for um, a meeting of Shemen Nerf, young people from all over the world. They wanted her to tell her story because Hannah's parents, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Hannah's parents in the next session, but Hannah's parents were Jewish and they're German Jews and they were taken from Cologne to the ghetto in Lotz, held there for six months, and then they were gassed in nearby Kelmno. So Shemin Nerf knew that this was Hannah's story and invited Hannah to come and tell her story, which she did. And then Hannah wanted to go to Kelmno again. We'd been there before. Ryan Thurman and all the, all the Thurmans were with us. And um, we went to Kelmno, where Hannah's parents were gassed. The morning before we went, we met in the hotel a German man. 
He was, I don't know, upper middle class for sure. Lived in France. Got to sharing. And it was obvious that he was carrying a lot of wounds from the fact that his family were Nazis during the Hitler years. And he didn't know what to do with his guilt. So in talking with him, we said to him, look, we're going to Kelmno. Do you want to come with us? Yes, he said, I would like to come. So we went to Kelmno. There's a place in Kelmno, it's marked, where the Jews were put into a gas van. They were put in the van, closed the door, gas turned on, driven to the forest. By the time they got to the forest, they were dead. That's why Hannah's parents were good. Hannah stood at that very spot. She put roses on the ground for her parents. And on one side of her were three Germans. And on the other side of her were another three Germans. And one of the Germans was this man that we had met in the breakfast buffet. Can you see that picture? A German Jewish Holocaust survivor whose parents were gassed by Germans, standing in the place where her parents were loaded into the truck with Germans on each side of her, all of them together bringing to the cross of Jesus that evil and saying, Lord Jesus, break the power of this evil. The love that was there among them. This is the love that characterized Jesus' leadership. Okay, two more characteristics and we're through real quick. Characteristic number seven, messaging. To lead effectively requires clear and consistent messaging. Jesus' first public leadership act was one of messaging. That's how Jesus started. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Next, he called disciples. He began to train them as future leaders of his movement by imparting his message to them. What was the message? The gospel of the kingdom. That was Jesus' message. Jesus' gospel was the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' message was the presence of the kingdom, the characteristics of the kingdom. Afterward, the scriptures tell us he went through all the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. What was Jesus' message? The gospel of the kingdom. And the twelve were with him. Where is the gospel of the kingdom of God in the church today? Where is that gospel? Where is that message? Where are the characteristics of the kingdom taught? Where are the characteristics of the kingdom transferred to the people of God? This was Jesus' message. The gospel of the kingdom. Do we want to become leaders? The kind of leaders that Jesus was? Worth focusing on Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. Jesus stayed on message concerning the new availability of God's kingdom with him right up until the time of his ascension. One of the last things we read in Acts about Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, one more characteristic and we're through. Characteristic number eight, characteristic of Jesus' leadership, 
reproduction. Reproduction. Jesus had three short years to catalyze a movement that would redirect history. What, what if you'd been given that job by God? Go to earth. I give you three years. You have to catalyze a movement that will change human history. You got three years. So where did Jesus focus? He focused on developing the leaders for the movement. Now, there's six processes I want to share with you in closing <clears throat> that were part of Jesus, how Jesus developed leaders. Here are the six processes, and then we're through. One, he called them. They didn't volunteer. They knew they were called. Why is that so important? Because, brothers and sisters, Christian leadership will cost you everything. If you think this is some kind of reward, think again. Christian leadership is costly. And you have to know that you're called to it. Secondly, he shared his life with them. Jesus' way of training was life on life. Life on life. Life on life. He shared his life with them. Three, he taught them. Four, he modeled what ministry looks like. He didn't just teach them. He did that. But then he said, come with me. Watch what I do. So he brought them with him. They watched what he did. Then the time came when he sent them out to do what he had done. Then he brought them back. He modeled what ministry looks like. Five, he released them. This is such an important concept in developing leaders, release. He released them when they were ready. One of the most, well, the two really important mistakes in leadership we want to avoid. Number one is never release. Just keep people, don't release them. That's a mistake. The second mistake is release them too early. Premature release. They're not ready. They're not ready. He released them. And then the sixth and final process, he protected them. One of the most important components of Christian leadership is protecting. Protecting the body, protecting the fellowship, protecting the young leaders, protecting those who are still largely in the flesh from hurting themselves. Protection. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was the most significant leader ever to live. Let's follow in his footsteps. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, teach us your way. We want to learn from you. Raise up leaders. Lord, in our day, we are so desperate for godly leaders who can carry authority and minister in your name and in your likeness. Do this among us. Teach us your way. We lift our hearts to you in thanksgiving and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.